0: Jonah's a familiar story. Um, I would bet that most uh, Christians and even a lot of non-Christians, people who are not really all that familiar with the Bible or not that familiar with church, I'm pretty sure most people know the story of Jonah. They made a nice little VeggieTales movie about it not that long ago. Well, maybe it was quite a bit ago because it was when my kids were little, so maybe 20 years ago. A lot of people know the basics about this story. Tonight, my goal is to show you that there's a lot more to the story than what you might have learned in Sunday school. There's a lot of depth to the book. There is a lot that we can derive from it that is not right apparent on the surface. Um, And that really kind of gets into one of the passions that I have in my life, and that is Bible study. I have been very passionate in my life about not just reading the Bible, but about studying the Bible. I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in church. Um, I was a three times a weeker from the time I was old enough to walk. My parents made sure that I was in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and every activity that was there, we were there for all that stuff. So I got plenty of Bible lessons, I got plenty of sermons, I got plenty of Sunday school classes. So as I grew up and I was told by Sunday school teachers and preachers and teachers in my Christian school that I needed to read my Bible and I needed to pray every day. At a certain point you think to yourself how much of this do I need and you start to get a little bit bored and I'll be honest when it came to just reading my Bible and doing devotionals I couldn't really stick to it and the main reason that I couldn't stick to it was because I was not digging deep enough. It was because I was reading it like a little devotional and it wasn't doing a whole lot for me, but once I started to study the Bible and I started to dig and I started to unearth some of the things that you will unearth when you start studying the Bible uh, in that kind of a way, the whole thing came alive. I realized that not only was this just a book of stories. But this was a book of truth, and it was something that could change my life, it could change my day. Um, So that's, that's really my passion, that's what I do when I teach, and that's what I'm going to try to convey tonight, that if you're reading the Bible, and you read it in a very cursory way, like you're perusing a newspaper, you're not going to get that much out of it. But if you're willing to do the work, you'll find that the Bible is a very living book, and it is something that can revolutionize the way you think about your own life and the way you interact with people in your own life. So, um, this familiar story of Jonah, probably everybody here could tell you the basics from memory without looking it up. They might even be able to tell you some of the the bigger things that happened. They might even know about the gourd in chapter 4. The problem with the book of Jonah is that the, the events These supernatural things that happen in this book, like this guy gets swallowed by a whale and then he gets barfed up onto dry land. And then from that, he goes to this city full of basically murderers and killers and these horrible people that like to skin people alive. That's what the Assyrians were known for, for skinning people alive. And he goes and he shows up, he preaches the shortest sermon in the history of sermons, I think it's like seven words uh, in, in the English translation, it's like four words in Hebrew, and the whole city repents. And everything changes, and basically just this story is almost unbelievable, because it comes off like a fairy tale. But it isn't a fairy tale, and we're going to try to show that tonight. The story has been attacked by many atheists, it's been attacked by a lot of theologians as being just a fable that teaches a moral lesson. And, um, and that's because of the nature of some of these events. But I'm going to show you why some of these events happened and why they were important to things that happened later in the Bible. Um, this, this book has also been, uh, I guess, attacked or criticized because Jonah shows what some people perceive to be a racist attitude toward the people of Nineveh. I'm gonna talk about that briefly a little bit later in the lesson. And there's also some criticism about the casting of lots that happens uh, at the beginning of the book when Jonah's on the boat and the storm starts and they're all trying to figure out who's responsible for this storm and they cast lots and the lots fall on Jonah. There are some people that would either criticize or misapply what that, what that means, and I'll talk about that for a second. Um, whenever you're reading the Bible, you have to be cognizant of the fact that the things that are happening today are not necessarily always going to be the same as the things that were happening then, okay? The casting of lots is one of those things. This, is, this would also kind of carry over into issues like speaking in tongues, issues like, why do I never see miracles? When was the last time we saw somebody raised from the dead? Been a while. But it seemed to happen quite a bit in the Bible. Why do we not see those things happen? Well, God was working with mankind in a different way back then. And I'm going to explain why. God was working in signs and in wonders, and the casting of lots was one of those ways that people would derive what the will of God was. Do you know why those things don't happen anymore? Because we have a Bible. Because the Bible, God's Word, gives us everything that we need. Those guys back then didn't have it. So the only way that they could understand truth from God was through prophecy, was through miracles, through signs, through wonders, and in some cases, to derive the will of God, they would cast lots. And God used that. He used it in the book of Acts, just like He used it in the book of Jonah. So that does not validate the casting of lots to figure out, you know, who our next youth pastor is going to be. If, you know, you you should not necessarily take everything out of these uh, these uh, Bible passages and try to apply them directly to your life because some of them don't apply. Um, many people perceive Jonah as a fairy tale, but in Second Peter chapter one. Peter tells us that we have not followed after cunningly devised fables. I like that phraseology that Peter uses there. Um, He says, we have not followed after cunningly devised fables. And my computer's giving me a hard time here, so just bear with me. I'll I'll go ahead and quote the passage. If you have a Bible, it's 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 16. I'm going to read this passage. because it kind of sets the stage for the rest of this lesson. Peter says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is not the baptism of Christ. Peter tells us in the next verse, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. So Peter's talking about the, the, the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain when Peter, James, and John were there with Jesus and they saw him transfigured before their eyes. He said, we've seen all this with our very eyes. We are not following fairy tales here, people. We saw this with our very eyes. But then Peter goes on to say something that's great. Because we don't see those things with our very eyes. But what Peter says in verse 19, he says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Peter tells us, and Peter's an important figure because he's gonna come up later in this lesson. He says, look, we haven't followed after fables. This stuff that we're talking about is not fairy tales. We saw it with our own eyes. But Peter says, but even if you haven't seen it with your own eyes, you have a more sure word of prophecy than even an eyewitness, and that's the Bible and that's a great thing to take with you kind of as as you go through your life is that even though you're not seeing some of these things with your eyes the Bible can be trusted it can be counted on it is a more sure word of prophecy than even being an eyewitness to some of these things these same critics that would criticize Jonah usually also deny the resurrection of the dead they de- they deny the divinity of Christ in general they deny the idea of the soul being conscious after death and Jonah disproves all of these claims. The book of Jonah is wonderful in that it can disprove all of those criticisms. And the first evidence um, that Jonah is a true story and not a fable is that Jesus endorsed it. Jesus of Galilee. I'm, I'm calling him Jesus of Galilee for a reason. Remember and this is going to come up in a, in a minute. Um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was from Galilee. And that led to a little bit of confusion on the part of some religious people at, in Jesus' day. Um, but I'm going to show you that here in a second. Jesus calls Jonah a prophet. In Matthew chapter 12, he actually says it in Matthew 16:4, but he also says it in Matthew chapter 12. And starting in verse 39... Well, let's go ahead and read verse 16, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 40. I'm sorry, no, it's verse 39. Matthew 12, 39. "But, but, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, but there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. He says Jonah is a prophet. For as Jonas, Jonah, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Now that is such a powerful scripture, I get chills every time that I read it, because I envision myself standing there in that crowd, listening to Jesus saying, in the end, the men of Nineveh are going to rise with you in the judgment, and they're going to condemn you because they repented, and a greater than Jonah is here right before you. That is such a powerful statement. It kind of surprises me that the Pharisees that were questioning Jesus at that time didn't just fall over dead, Um, but that was one of two times that Jesus called Jonah a prophet, So we can learn three things from this. It is significant that Jesus called Jonah a prophet for three reasons. Um, One, as Jesus mentioned here in Matthew chapter 12, Jonah's experience in that fish or that whale served as an archetype or a precursor of the resurrection. It was a symbol of what was to come. When Jonah went into that fish and he was in that fish for three days and three nights, that was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen. And Jesus called it, okay? Jesus says, hey, this is before he died. He says, I'm going to be in the ground three days and three nights, and then I'm going to be gone. And the same thing happened to Jonah. So Jesus was using the story of Jonah, the story, the true story of Jonah, to teach the Pharisees that they didn't need a sign, that once Jesus rose from the dead, that was all the sign they were going to need. And so that that is significance number one. Significance number two, and this gets lost on people sometime, is that Jesus calls Jonah a prophet. But if you know the story of Jonah, and I'm guessing most people here do, so we're not gonna get into the details. Um, But if you know the story of Jonah, Jonah made one prediction, just one. What was his prediction? That in 40 days, the city of Nineveh was going to be destroyed. Did the city of Nineveh, was it destroyed in 40 days? No, it was not. But yet Jonah was still a prophet. That teaches us something about the word prophet and something about the word prophecy. Prophecy is not foretelling future events. Because if Jonah was a prophet, his foretelling of future events was o for 1. He was a big goose egg. He never foretold any future events accurately, and yet Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God, calls Jonah a prophet. The the word prophet and the word prophecy basically means to be God's spokesperson. When the gift of prophecy is talked about in the New Testament, that is not talking about the gift of foretelling future events. Some churches practice it that way, some churches interpret it that way, that is incorrect. What the gift of prophecy means is the gift of somebody who can speak for God. It is like being the, having the gift of being a preacher. So that is what being a prophet and, and prophecy is all about, not foretelling future events. And the third thing that we can learn from Jesus calling Jonah a prophet is that the Pharisees, and the, remember the Pharisees are the religious elite. These are the religious elite of Jesus' day. These were the guys that made all the rules. These were the guys that ran all the churches. These were the guys that made all the decisions when it came to religious matters, the Pharisees. They were the most educated. They were supposedly the smartest. They were the ones that everybody followed and everybody looked up to. But the Pharisees had a very shallow understanding of Scripture. And I'm going to show you this. Because in John chapter 7, verse 52, and remember, Jesus called Jonah a prophet in John chapter 7 verse 52 they questioned Jesus when Jesus proclaimed himself or others would proclaim that he was the Messiah in John 7 52 the Pharisees said art thou also of Galilee search and look meaning read the scriptures for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet so the Pharisees real arrogant I I can't even imagine the arrogance that it would take to go up to the son of God and say read the Bible why don't you search the scriptures. Here they are standing before the the embodiment of the word of God, the literal human manifestation of God's voice and they're telling him why don't you read your Bible, pal, because no prophet has ever come from Galilee. Well, I'm going to show you that they were wrong because Jonah was from Galilee and Jesus called Jonah a prophet. So I don't know if there is a map on the screen. There is. I don't know how well that you can read it. Um, I can see it fine. So if you're in the back and you want to move forward, you can. It's no no big deal. Or you can just stay there and I'll tell you what you're you're looking at. In the map on the left, that is a map of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there are two tribes where there is a blue star and there's kind of like uh, two tribes that kind of intersect right there one is called Zebulun and the other one's called Naphtali at the intersection of Zebulun and Naphtali there is a city there and that is the city that Jonah was from and we can find this out by reading our Bible and the Pharisees could have found this out from reading their Bible too but they obviously didn't the map on the right is the map of Israel in Jesus day and that yellow area there is Galilee that's where Jesus was from now there's no way you can read it but all the way down that green section toward the Dead Sea you see the little body of water there almost real close to that is a little city called Bethlehem that's where Jesus was born and that's where the Pharisees and everyone else were. it was expecting the Messiah to come from because the scripture had foretold that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem of Judea so that's what they were looking for And when they said, hey, you're from Galilee, you can't be the Messiah. Haven't you read the Bible, dude? Well, that just goes to show their shallow understanding of the Bible. Because yes, the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, but he was going to live and come out of Galilee. And I'm going to show you the scriptures that show that. There are one, two, three, four, five different scriptures that I'm going to go to. um, And I'm going to show you, how you yourself with a simple little Bible study could come to this very same conclusion and it's through just doing like little word searches. Now, the Pharisees didn't have access to Google. They didn't have Bibles with concordances. They didn't have Bible dictionaries and they didn't have apps on their phone where they could do this stuff really, really fast. But they still had access to the scrolls, okay? So these guys could have studied the scripture like they were supposed to, but they didn't. We have all these tools available to us. We don't have any excuse for not being able to do basic Bible study like this. So I'm just going to show you how you can just chase down some words and follow these words, follow these names, and you can see, you can find for yourself where Jonah was from, why he was a prophet, and you know the fact that he came from Galilee, which, which basically says that the Pharisees were wrong. And you know, you'd have to think to yourself when they'd said that, Jesus is just kind of chuckling at himself, going, man, you, you guys think you know everything, don't you? Um, Jonah 1.1, the first verse of the book, says, now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, names are very important in the Bible. And I know that genealogies can often get um, tiresome when you're reading them in the Bible, reading, you know, this guy begat this guy, and this guy begat this guy. You know, those genealogies sometimes are very important when you start putting uh, chronologies in order, when you start to try to take uh, events and figure out what happened and in what order and what sequence. And sometimes they're important because you can derive through a person's name something like a location like we saw on the map. So that word Amittai appears one other time in the Bible. And if you took the, the app on your phone and you searched Amittai, In the Bible, you would find it in Jonah 1 1, and you would find it a second time in the book of 2 Kings. Now, the book of 2 Kings is a historical book, it is not a book of fiction. So, if Jonah is mentioned in a book of history and not in a book of fiction, then it is not a fable, it is not a fairy tale. So, again, this is another evidence that the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, is not a fable. It is part of the history of the nation of Israel, and it's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 14. And in 2 Kings 14:25, it says, he, and this is speaking of the king Jeroboam, restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Hepher." Hefer is uh, kind of a mouthful, but that's a city. So if you search for Gath Hefer, you're going to find that mentioned one other time in scripture. It's slightly different. It's actually uh, Hefer, but you can find it. And that's recorded back in Joshua. So we're kind of taking our steps backward. So Jonah was the son of Amittai. Amittai was from a city called Hefer, And Hefer was where? Where was Gethsemane in the nation of Israel? Well, we can find that in Joshua chapter 19. Joshua chapter 19. We'll read verse 13 and then we'll kind of skip ahead to verse 16. In Joshua 19, now remember Joshua, this was when the nation of Israel crossed over the Red Sea from Moses, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They finally entered the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. And that's when they outlined those 12 tribes that we had up there on the map. This is when the borders of all those 12 tribes were determined. And in Joshua 19, verse 13, it says, And the third lot came up for the children of Zebulun, according to their families, and the border of their inheritance was unto Sarad. And then jump to verse 16, it says, And from thence passeth on along to the east to Gittahefer, which is the same city as Githefer. Okay? So, what we just learned was that Gethephir, or Gidehephir, was in the tribe of Zebulun. That's all we really needed to know. And we find out later, and you you could see it on the map, that Zebulun was Galilee. Part of Zebulun and part of Naphtali were the region known as Galilee. So, Jonah, the son of Amittai, was from Gethephir, which was in Zebulun, which marked the border between Zebulun and Naphtali and was smacked in the middle of an area called Galilee. So when the Pharisees said to Jesus, hey dude, read your Bible, because no prophet ever came from Galilee, Jesus could have just turned around and said, well, what about Jonah? Have you ever read about Jonah? Do you know where Jonah was from? And he could have pulled out these verses and told them. He didn't. He just let them think that they were smart, as Jesus often did. And there are two other verses that um, that I have here that we're going to skip uh, skip beyond that show you that Zebulun, Zebulun is in Galilee. And those verses are Isaiah 9:1. If you're keeping notes and you want to look them up later, look up Isaiah 9:1. And then Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, quotes Isaiah and talks about how Jesus was going to come from Galilee. So that's the second thing that we can learn, and that's the, the evidence from, the, from Jesus of Galilee that Jonah was indeed a true story, that he was a prophet, that his story was true, that it was real, and you can see that we referenced how many different scriptures? Was it six, seven, eight? It was a lot. We bounced around to different parts of the Bible, we went back to Joshua, we were in 2 Kings. You can read about it in in Isaiah, you can read it in Matthew. And what I'm trying to show you is that all of the scripture ties together. It fits like a puzzle. And all of those puzzle pieces are out there and even a simple name search, when you get done with it, you can go, wow, this is amazing. I just learned that the Pharisees were idiots. We always kind of knew that they were idiots, but you just can see it now in Scripture that they should have known this. And that is the problem with the religious elite. The religious elite like to sit up high and they like to criticize the Scripture and they like to criticize the Bible and they like to say, well, this is really more of a moral story, it's more of a fairy tale, it's not really true. When Jesus you know, was in the grave and and he rose from the dead. Really, he was just in a swoon. He wasn't really dead. And you hear these textual critics and you hear these people contending with the Scripture. They're always the religious elite. It's always the people sitting up high on their high horse criticizing the Bible or criticizing those who follow God by faith. And yet you'll find most of the time those religious elite don't know their Scripture like they think they do. And just a little bit of Bible study, a little bit of digging, a lot of times can expose that people who run their mouth about religious things don't often know their Bible as well as they let on. So the, the, the whole point of that, evidence number one, is I think it is reasonable to assert that the life of the one and only failed prophet, Jonah's the only prophet in Scripture who went on one mission and failed... He's the only prophet that failed in Scripture. The question is, why is his story there? Okay, because God did a great miracle? I think it's reasonable to assume that the life of the only failed prophet recorded in Scripture, which took place 800 years prior to a statement that the Pharisees made, denouncing Christ as a fraud, which we can conclusively prove that their statement was false using multiple scriptures that date back another 600 years and written by five different authors all of which is symbolic to validate the resurrection of Christ can tell you that all of the Bible makes sense when you put it all together there's no way that's an accident there's no way you can take 1400 years of history, five different authors, and just magically come up with this symbolic story of Jonah that just so happens to validate Jesus and they were both from Galilee. It, it is not a coincidence. The scripture is by design. It is there, it is, and you can study it, and you can find these things out, and it's very exciting when you start to see through Bible study that the scripture is true. That you're not believing in a fairy tale. This stuff is actually true. So now I'm gonna give you evidence number two. There is no way I am getting through all of my material. So I'll just get as far as I can. Um, Evidence number two, Simon Peter, uh, Cornelius and the Jerusalem Councils, okay? This is further evidence that Jonah is true. And this is a little bit, um, let's just say a little bit harder to find. It's a little less obvious than what Jesus said. But I want to show you some things about Peter and how Peter in his life took on the mantle of Jonah and was used to reach the Gentile world or at least open the door to reaching the Gentile world just like Jonah did. Um, First, let's look at Peter's name. John 1, 42. Peter's one of these guys whose name was changed. Okay? Remember I told you that names mean a lot in Scripture. Well, you know what means even more? is when somebody's name is changed. That is always a very important event in Scripture. When Abram's name was changed from Abram to Abraham, that was a big moment. When Paul's name was changed from Saul to Paul, that was a big moment. And a lot of times we breeze over this one, but when Peter's name was changed from Simon to Peter, that was a big moment too. But look at, look at what Jesus says in John 1.42. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of who? The son of Jonah. And thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Now Peter's real father's name was Jonah. Do you think that was an accident? I'm about to show you that it wasn't. Jesus said, you know, why would Jesus introduce him that way? Wouldn't he, couldn't he have just said, Your name is Simon, I'm going to call you Peter now. Nope, he made a point to say, You're Simon, the son of Jonah. Jesus was dropping breadcrumbs and he's expecting us to connect the dots. There's some dots here. I'm going to show you how they connect. Let's look at the location of what Peter does in the book of Acts. There's a very uh, important event that takes place in Acts chapter 10. I'm going to sum it up for you because I'm kind of of going long. Um, I'll sum it up. Acts chapter 9. What happens in Acts chapter 9? In Acts chapter nine, Paul is knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and he's saved. That's the biggest thing that happens in Acts chapter nine. But at the end of Acts chapter nine, we're told that Peter was gallivanting around the southern part of of Judea and he happened to go down to an area um, called Lydda. And he was there, he was ministering, he was preaching. I don't know what he was doing, you know, healing people, doing whatever. Doing his, doing his apostle thing. And he got word that some lady who everyone loved, who was considered one of the spiritual leaders in this city, had died. And he needed to come right away. They needed him to come down there. And Peter goes down there to this city and he sees this woman. Her name was Tabitha. The other, uh, the, that was her Jewish name. Her Greek The Greek form of her name was Dorcas. Um, thankfully Your daughters aren't named Dorcas. They probably would get teased incessantly. Tabitha's okay, but Dorcas I wouldn't recommend. Uh, But he goes to see this woman. She's dead. She's dead. She's been dead for days. And then Peter raises her from the dead. Okay? So it wasn't just Jesus that raised Lazarus from the dead. It wasn't just Paul that raised somebody uh, from the dead who fell out of a window. Peter also raised someone from the dead, and it was this Tabitha. It was there for a reason. The city where Peter was at was a city called Joppa. Joppa is mentioned 13 times in the whole Bible. 10 times in the Bible, it is mentioned between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11. So, the vast majority of the time that you hear about Joppa is right here in these events that are taking place in Acts, start taking place in Acts chapter 9. And they conclude in Acts chapter 11. And Joppa's referred to over and over again. Peter went down to Joppa. Peter raised a woman from the dead in Joppa. Do you know what else happened in Joppa? Joppa's where Jonah jumped on a boat and decided he wasn't going to go to Nineveh. So that's out of 13 times that it's mentioned in Scripture, 10 times it's in the life of Peter and the ministry of Peter, the son of Jonah and the most notable event that happened in that city was that Jonah decided he was gonna hop a ship and go to Spain instead of going to Nineveh. These stories connect, people. These these are not accidents, okay? So there's a very important thing that happened with Peter's name, and there's a very important thing that happened in this location of Joppa. Well, in Joppa, Peter, after he raises this woman from the dead, has this dream. I'm summarizing Acts chapter 9-11 through 11 for you. So if you want to read this, go ahead and read it. It's a good read. And so Peter has this dream while he's in Joppa. He's staying with a guy named Simon who's a tanner. And he has this dream and he, he's hungry in his dream. I dream a lot. A lot of times I'm hungry in my dreams. Um, that usually just wakes me up and makes me go eat a bowl of cereal. <clears throat> in Peter's case, his dream... Uh, a sheet was let down from heaven and it had all kinds of animals in that sheet and most of those animals were animals that Peter as a Jew was not allowed to eat but he was hungry in his dream and God in this dream said go ahead and eat and Peter said whoa, 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 whoa man I can't eat that stuff that's against the law and and God told him hey what I've called clean you don't call dirty you go ahead and eat So. That obviously registered with Peter, and he woke up and said, wow, that was a weird dream. Uh, He probably couldn't really uh, imagine the taste of bacon, but I bet you he had some bacon in that dream. Anyway, at the same time, while Peter's having this crazy dream about this sheet and about this stuff being called clean that was always dirty to him as a Jew, there's also a dream that is given to this guy named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. Cornelius is guess where he's at he's really close to Joppa and God tells him get up and go to Joppa and go see this guy named Peter he's staying with a guy named Simon a Tanner and when you get there he'll tell you what you need to know that's it so Cornelius says wow that was a weird dream maybe I better go do what I was told so he gets up takes his entourage he is a centurion okay so he had a you know a band of soldiers that went with him everywhere he shows up to Peter's doorstep and said, hey man, I had this weird dream and it told me to come to Joppa and it told me to come see a guy named Peter who was staying with Simon the Tanner and lo and behold, there's a guy named Peter here at Simon the Tanner's house in a city called Joppa. And Peter goes, wow, that's cool, I had a dream too. And I was told that not to call anything dirty that he had called clean. You know why God told him that? Because it was against the law for a Jew to eat with a Gentile. Peter was not allowed to be doing what he was doing with Cornelius. To give him the gospel was against the law for a Jew to give a Gentile the gospel. So God sends Peter a dream to say, nope, I got a mission for you, you you can't call dirty what I've called clean. And so Peter, because of that dream, gives the gospel to this guy Cornelius, Cornelius gets saved, he receives the Holy Ghost, and you know what happens in Acts chapter 11? all the Jews in Jerusalem get mad about it! They're mad! They're not mad because Cornelius got saved. They're mad because Peter ate with a Gentile. So do you know what Peter does? He tells these guys this story and he tells it to them twice. He tells it to them once in Acts chapter 11 and then he reiterates himself again in Acts chapter 15 when they start contending with him again over a very similar issue. Peter tells them, hey, I got this dream and I went to Joppa. Now for, for you and me, when we hear the word Joppa, we might not think a whole lot of it, but I guarantee you every one of those Jews that was arguing with Peter when he said, I went to Joppa, knew the significance of that city. Every single one of them went, that's where Jonah was. What did Jonah do? What did God tell Jonah to do? Jonah, God told Jonah to go to a bunch of Gentiles and give them the version of the gospel at that day, which was repent or die. So the gospel was a little different to the Ninevites than it is for us, okay? But they knew the significance of Joppa, and then Peter at the end of his defense says, Who was I to withstand God? What was I going to do? Do what Jonah did? Look what happened to that guy. So of course, the Jews go, Oh, well, praise God. Thank God that that went down the way that it did. The Gentiles are also now able to be saved. So this door that had been closed to millions of people on the entire planet just opens up and it just happens to open up in the city of Joppa. My point is that that is not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence that Peter was the son of Jonah. It is not a coincidence that Jesus said Peter was the son of Jonah. It's not a coincidence that Peter had this magnificent thing that takes up almost three chapters of one of the best books of the Bible, and he keeps talking about this city called Joppa. And the only other time you read about that city is in the story of Jonah. These stories connect. So, is it a fable? Is it a coincidence? If it is, that's a whole lot of coincidences. I tend to think that the Bible is true. And that's the rational explanation for what we're seeing here. Here's a few random thoughts about the book of Jonah. I'm not gonna get to the last point, which is typology in the book of Jonah. That's probably a whole nother lesson. So I'm gonna have to skip that part. Maybe I'll be asked to come back and teach that part sometime, I don't know. But I'm gonna give you a few random thoughts and then we can go ahead and wrap it up. Random thoughts about the book of Jonah. One, and this is an easy one, Anybody can derive this from the book of Jonah, but God uses failing people to accomplish his will, doesn't he? I mean, we're all failures in some way, to some degree, to some level. We've all stumbled in our lives. We've all made mistakes. Some of them are as big as the mistake Jonah made. Some of them are even bigger. But God finds ways to use failing people. And when you think about the book of Jonah... Everything, and I'm going to kind of summarize here the, all four chapters, the storm, the lots that were cast, the mariners on that boat, the fish, the Ninevites, the gourd that grew, the worm that ate the gourd, all of those things obeyed God. They all did what they were told. But the one person in that book that didn't was Jonah. And yet, Jesus still refers to him as a prophet. And look at the pivotal role that he plays in validating all of Scripture. When read properly, the book of Jonah should make you more confident in Scripture than you ever were before. It shouldn't make you think you're following a fairy tale. On the contrary, it should make you believe the Bible is true. And God can do that through an abject failure like Jonah. What a wonderful thing. Jonah in chapter 1, and verse 4, this is just a r- little random thought, <clears throat> he is asked uh, a series of questions um, by the mariners or the sailors. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 8, they say unto him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? Okay. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? And what is thy country? And of what people art thou? So they're doing an interrogation. They're asking them all these questions. They ask four questions. And, and Jonah says unto them, I am in Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. He gives them one answer. He says, I'm a Hebrew. Answers four questions with one answer. So that should tell us something. Um, it's not a perfect illustration, but I am a Christian should have, should have the same power. When people ask you a bunch of questions about who you are, what you think, where you're from, why you do this, why you believe this, why you dress the way you do, you should just be able to go, I'm a Christian. Just like Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew. What a simple answer. It should really encapsulate everything that it means to be who you are. That I am a Christian. It should be able to be our all-encompassing explanation for whatever it is in our lives that people would, would ask us about. Now Jonah 1.12, another random thought, Jonah 1.12, if you know the story, I'm not going to read the verse, Um, they're going to, how do I say this, they're about to cast Jonah over the, or they don't know what to do. They cast the lots, it falls on Jonah, they don't even know what to do. They're like, what are we going to do now? You're the guy, you tell us what to do. And Jonah says, well, just throw me overboard, just kill me. Then the storm will cease and you guys will all be saved. These were all Gentiles on this boat. Okay? So while some people might accuse Jonah of being racist against Gentiles, he wasn't. He was willing to die for those Gentiles. He was willing to sacrifice his own life. The problem that Peter, or that Jonah had, was with the Assyrians. These guys were butchers. Okay? The Assyrians were well known throughout that region for being very vicious people. They oppressed the Jews, they oppressed uh, all different kinds of people, and when they conquered you, they didn't just like take your stuff, okay? They took your stuff and they murdered everybody, and they tortured people, and like I told you before, they skinned people alive, they were kind of well known for that. These were not good people. So Jonah's problem with going to Nineveh was probably twofold. One, he was probably scared, like, you want me to go preach to those guys? That's a tall order. And number two, he probably, and he says it in the book, he says, I knew this was going to happen, God. I knew when I preached to them, they were going to repent, you were going to show them mercy, this stinks. It wasn't because he hated Gentiles. It was because he thought those butchers needed to be punished for what they did. In all likelihood, Jonah had family that had been killed by these people. He at least had some friends that had been tortured, killed, murdered, whatever. Those people in his eyes did not deserve God's mercy, they deserve God's judgment. Well, that's another lesson that we can take too, okay? God shows mercy on who he shows mercy. That's not for us to decide. It is not for us to decide in our lives who God should punish and who God should reward. That's up to God. If God tells us to go to the worst people on the planet, we need to go to the worst people on the planet because that's what God told us to do. And lastly, this is uh, the last random thought that I have. This goes back to what Jonah's answer was. He says, I am in Hebrew. But he didn't stop there. He said, I am in Hebrew, and I worship the God who created everything. He says, I am in Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. <clears throat> and the, the random thought is, is that introducing God as the creator to people who don't believe is really a great way to introduce God because that is where faith begins. Um, When people, when when you witness to people, when you talk to people, when you try to make an impression on people, um, one of the most important things that you convey to them is not whether or not speaking in tongues is the right way to go. It is not about the nuances of Scripture Or what happens in the book of Revelation. A lot of times people will try to get you pulled into arguments like that. We really need to focus with unbelievers on God being the Creator. That is the simple place to start. God made heaven and earth. You want to know why our culture is having all the problems that we're having right now? It can all go back to that right there. People just don't recognize that God made them. God made them. They were born the way they were supposed to be, right? all these people that have problems knowing if they're male or female how did God create man he created them male and he created them female it goes right back to Genesis 1 okay and this is the problem our society has the more they deny God as the creator the more confused they're going to get this is how we need to introduce God don't focus on the, the depths and doctrines from the scripture okay you can't start there When Jonah talks to these guys on that boat, he says, I am in Hebrew, I worship the God who created everything. He is not the only one who introduced God this way. There was another really cool preacher in the New Testament who made a habit out of introducing God the exact same way. His name was Paul. In Acts chapter 14, and I'm going to summarize Acts chapter 14, Paul gets stoned in this this chapter, okay? Okay. But he's stoned by the exact same people who just a couple of days before were worshiping him like he was a god. This shows how fickle people can be, right? I had a conversation with a friend about Palm Sunday yesterday. Um, and I got to thinking, you know, it, people are fickle, right? Jesus rides into to Jerusalem on this donkey and all these people are laying down the palm trees and they're throwing their coats down. And they're like, oh, Hosanna in the highest, they're praising God. Just a few days later they're screaming crucify him. The same thing that happens to Paul in the city of, of Lystra. He, well, he rides into town with Barnabas and the next thing you know they're putting him on a platform and worshiping him like a god. Three days later he's being stoned in the street. Okay, people are fickle. But look the way, look at the way Paul introduces God in Acts chapter 14. They're worshiping him, right? They got him on a pedestal and they're worshiping him like he's, you know, Mercury or Jupiter, I can't remember which one. He says, sirs, why do you do these things? We are also men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. So Paul introduces God the same way. He introduces him as the creator. Just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 17, Paul's in a different city. Lystra is a city full of, um, let's just call it ruffians, okay, they're idol worshippers. they're pagans, they're kind of rough around the edges, this is, you know, this is working class Joes, they, ma- they make little graven images, this is, you know, these are blue collar guys. Well, in Acts chapter 17, Paul's not in, around with blue collar guys, he's in the city of Athens, this is where all the knowledgeable people are, all the scholars are okay they got their idols too but it's it's in a totally different way it's a much smarter kind of idolatry so Paul here is in Athens and look at how he introduces God he says as I passed by and beheld your devotions I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him declare I unto you God that made the world and all things therein seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing that he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So, yes, Jonah introduced God as the creator, but Paul did too. And that's a good lesson for us. It's just kind of a random thought that I got out of there that introducing God as the creator is probably a great place to start. So, the next section that I have is on a typology of Jonah. There's no way I can get through that in five or ten minutes. So I'm just going to go ahead and wrap it up. But the point that I've tried to make all night <clears throat> is that the Bible is true, okay? You can take that away. The Bible is true and when studied properly this is the obvious conclusion that you must draw. It is, if, if you start to doubt whether or not the Bible's true what you need to do is read it more you need to dig, dig a little deeper. Jonah was a historical figure, not a fable. And his experience was used to open the door of the gospel to the Gentile world through Peter, who was all called the son of Jonah. Um, interestingly, Peter started that whole series of events with what? The resurrection of the dead. Okay. In the next the next time I get a chance to teach, I'll try to teach this second section where we'll see that Jonah actually did die. Jonah wasn't just Rolling around there in the belly of that whale for three days. He actually died. And I can show you conclusively through Jonah chapter two how he did die. Um, Jonah died. He was saved by the fish. He was resurrected as a picture of Christ. If he didn't die, that would have been a pretty poor picture of Christ. But Jesus said, just like Jonah was in the belly of that whale three days and three nights, I'm gonna be in the belly of the earth, and we're both gonna rise again. And last but not least, we'll just wrap it up with this and then we'll pray. We gotta promote creationism, people. This is really important to our world today. It's kind of a passion of mine. I think people are just lost. They're just lost in this world, and one of the reasons that they're lost is because they just lost sight of the fact that God made them. God made you. You can accept yourself the way you are because God made you. It's okay. So that's really the way, uh, probably the best way, that we can introduce God to the lost, to unbelievers, is by showing him as God is the creator. And that's a great place to start.